Now we're going to turn our attention to God's Word, and we're going to worship Him as we continue uh, to hear His Word today. So if you have a Bible, please open it with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 13 this morning. Philippians 2, 3 through 13. While you're turning there, I just wanted to uh, tell you a quick story because over the last few years, I've noticed that a lot of people talk a lot about pride and humility. And I don't think anybody's making it their New Year's resolution to be more arrogant in 2021 because we all have some sort of sense deep within us that humility is actually a good thing and it's worth pursuing. And we don't actually want to be prideful. We want to be humble. But what does it actually even mean to be humble. We use that word a lot, but a lot of people have absolutely no idea what it means beyond some vague notion of not thinking so highly of yourself. Well, according to the Bible, humility is actually a really practical thing that can change every second of your life. And so what I want you to see today as we turn to God's word is that the coming of Christ that we just celebrated at Christmas, is our only hope for being humble in the new year. The main point that I want to bring home to you today is that you are called to humbly depend on Christ and to humbly serve others. You are called to humbly depend on Christ and to humbly serve others. So we're going to walk through the passage today, Philippians 2, 3 through 13, and we're going to see three truths about humility as we do that. First, we're going to see the meaning of humility. What is humility anyway? Number two, we're going to see the man of humility. We're going to see how Jesus Christ is the supreme example of humility and our only hope as prideful sinners. And number three, we'll see the method of of humility, how you and I can actually become more humble in God's plan. The meaning of humility, the man of humility, and the method of humility. But now we're going to read uh, the passage, Philippians 2, 3 through 13. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray and ask for God's help. 
God, I pray that you would help us to understand your word, to apply it to our hearts, and to treasure it in our lives. I pray that you would give us all open ears and soft hearts to hear and apply your word. It's for your name we pray. Amen. The main idea today that you are called to humbly depend on Christ and humbly serve others. We're going to see that main idea fleshed out in three main truths about humility. Number one, the meaning of humility. So what is humility anyway? A lot of Christians and a lot of people in general have a lot of clever sounding phrases to define humility. And we say things like, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And you know, that's fine. It's a cute little phrase. It's kind of clever sounding, but I'm not sure if it even means anything. And when I read it, I'm like, well, you know, it sounds good, but I have no idea how that changes my life. And and to, to make matters even worse, I think there's actually a lot of people, including the guy preaching right now, who definitely do need to think less highly of themselves. So we have a lot of confusion about what humility even is. And our passage today starts with a clear definition of what humility is and what it looks like. We see that in verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is an attitude that produces an action. It's not so much a vague notion about feeling more lowly of yourself. It's a choice to count others as more significant than yourself. And what does that mean? Because that still sounds kind of vague to me. Well, verse 4 gives us an answer. If we keep reading, the passage shows us exactly what humility looks like. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So to look only to your own interests means that you always get what you want and you're always fighting to get what you want. Whereas to look to the interests of others means that you give others what they want and what they need, no matter the cost to you. So humility is an attitude that produces an action, looking not to your own interests, but rather to the interests of others. To choose to not get what you want and to choose to give others what they want, what they need. In our culture, we don't have to be taught to look out for ourselves or to look to our own interests. Throughout our entire lives, everything inside of us in our sinful heart and everything around us in the world around us is screaming at us messages like, live for yourself, take what you deserve, treat yourself, you've earned it. And that's why what Philippians 2 teaches about humility is so radical. It's calling us to live for something and someone besides ourselves, namely the good of the people around us. Pride, selfish ambition, looking to your own interests, says, I deserve. While humility asks, what do others need or want? Pride says, I deserve while humility asks, what do others need or want? I deserve It is a distinctly unchristian mindset. That's not the way that God created us to operate. As Christians, we lay down our lives for the good of others. We lay down our rights and our privileges for the good of others. So in your marriage, pride says, I deserve to get my way, 
while humility says, what would make my spouse the most happy? In your workplace, pride says, I deserve to be respected, while humility says, how can I serve others? How can I best advance the mission of this company? With your roommates, pride says, I live here too. I pay rent here too. I can do whatever I want. I can be as loud as I want. While humility says, what would give my roommates the best use of this space? Humility isn't just an attitude. It's an action to lay down your rights for the good of others, to deny what you want so that you can give others what they want. It looks like having a disagreement and knowing that you're right, but choosing not to go ahead, insisting on your own way, because you know that winning an argument isn't going to help the other people around you. Winning an argument and forcing your own viewpoint is looking to your own interests, but ending a conversation before someone else's feelings get hurt is looking to their interests. Humility looks like repenting of your sin and apologizing to others first and not expecting anything in return even when you think they sinned worse than you did. Demanding an apology from someone is looking to your own interests. But actually being grieved by your own sin against someone and repenting of them is looking to, repenting to them is looking to your own interests. Humility looks like thinking of a joke about someone else and choosing not to say it out loud. Making a joke about someone else regardless of how it hurts them, so that people will appreciate you more, is looking to your interests. But refusing to make that joke and protecting that friend is looking to their interests. And this is, these are all little things, but this is really hard to consistently, every day, lay down your life for others. To regularly deny what you want so that others will get what they want and what they need. Humbly serving others is hard, it will mean that you will miss out on things that you want because you're not looking for your own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Christ said that this was the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now the problem, of course, I hope you're all feeling this weight on your shoulders because none of us have done this. We are all prideful sinners we have all lived selfishly. We've all fought to protect our own rights and privileges instead of serving others. And that's why Christ came, to humbly serve and save prideful sinners like me and you. And that leads us to our second key truth about humility, the man of humility. Christ is the supreme example of humility, but he is also the only hope for prideful sinners to be freed from pride and sin and death. So in verse 5, the passage transitions to a poem, which many people actually believe is one of the earliest Christian hymns. So one of the first songs that were ever written to praise our God is written down for us here in the book of Philippians. We have the lyrics. And this hymn describes the coming of Christ, which we just celebrated at Christmas, and what that coming means for us. So it starts out in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The Christ who came at Christmas 
was not merely a great prophet or a moral teacher, an inspiring leader or a good example. He is God himself. You see, we believe in the Trinity. We believe that there is only one God who created the heavens and the earth and rules over all things, and he always will. But we believe that this one God exists, and he always has, in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons is fully God and fully shares in the divine nature, the divine attributes, the divine glory. They are all like God. They all act like God because they are God. They are all worshipped as God because they are God. Each of these persons is fully God. God the Son, who revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, has always been fully God. From eternity past, before time existed, he was. He never came into being. He has always been God. Or as Philippians 2 says, he existed in the form of God. And at a particular point in history, the glorious good news of Christmas is that he took on a human nature and he dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout his life on earth, Christ never stopped being God, and he never stopped acting like God. He took on a human nature without taking off anything from his divine nature. So when Mary held the baby Jesus, he was upholding the universe by the word of his power. The baby who so desperately needed milk from his mother is the God who graciously gives all good things. When Mary was counting her little baby's ten fingers and ten toes, he had already numbered every hair on her head. Christ has always been God, and he will always be God. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking on a human nature. And Philippians 2 says that he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he didn't consider it something to be exploited. Yes, he is fully God, and yes, he has always been fully God. But he didn't look out for his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Rather to the interests of prideful sinners like me and you. Jesus Christ could have come into this world in a palace, but instead he was born in a manger. He didn't exploit his divine authority or access for his own good because he wasn't looking to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. He laid down his rights and privileges for the good of others. But how was it that Christ's coming, taking on a human nature, being born in a stable, is good news for us? I mean, sure, it's an interesting story, but how is it humble? How is it in our interest that Christ came, took on the form of a servant, and dwelt among us? Well, the passage continues and it answers that question in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Taking on a human nature, and choosing a humble birth was not the most humble thing that God the Son did. From that point, he continued to humble himself by giving his very life. Jesus Christ, 
God the Son, who has always been the Creator God, who made and sustains the world by the word of His power, was brutally, shamefully, publicly murdered. He was betrayed by His friends. He was denied by His disciples. He was stripped naked. He was publicly humiliated. He was mocked by crowds. He was beaten by soldiers. He was forced to carry a heavy crossbeam through a busy city. And then he was nailed to it, where he died a slow and painful and excruciating death. You see, crucifixion was just about the worst way to die in the ancient world. The Roman Empire was, were masters of torture. And so a group of them devised the most horrible way to kill someone, and they invented crucifixion. When someone was crucified, they didn't die by the nails in their hands or their feet. That was just to make the road to death as painful and humiliating and shameful as possible. No, they actually died by slowly running out of air and being unable to pull themselves up to put more air in their lungs. They died by being asphyxiated. And it was a slow, painful, shameful death. And Christ did that for you. He chose to give his life. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying John's gospel together. And a few weeks ago, we read, we read these words of Jesus in John 10, 18, where Christ, knowing full well what horrors awaited him at the cross, said this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Christ willingly died for us, for those who betrayed him, for those who pridefully insist on our own way. Christ died for those who have not loved him. Christ did this for you. When Christ died, he was taking on the punishment for our crimes. He didn't receive the wrath of God for his own sin because he didn't have any. He was perfect and he always will be. Because he is fully man, he could die in our place as an acceptable substitute. Because he is fully God, he was an acceptable substitute for all of us, for any who would trust in him throughout history. But the greatest news is that Christ didn't stay in the tomb. But three days later, he victoriously rose from the dead, triumphing over death and sin forever, and he will never die again. And those who trust in him will live forever with him. So Christ calls you, you today, to confess your sin to confess the ways that you've lived for yourself and failed to live for others. Christ calls you to trust in him, to humbly admit that there's nothing good that you can offer because you're too sinful. I want you to just realize the gravity of this, that there is a God who knows 
all of your junk and all of your baggage and all of your wrongdoing. He knows every reason to not love you and he loves you because he's humble and because he's looking not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. He loves you. Today, you can receive this gift, the best gift of all time, life in Christ. He died for you and he rose again for you. So trust in him and be saved. If you want to learn more about what it means to be saved by Christ, to trust in God for salvation, come and talk to me before you leave today. I, there's nothing that I, would that I would rather do than talk with you about what it means to trust in Christ. Now let's look back at Philippians 2.8. There's an interesting phrase there that I want to make sure we don't miss. It doesn't just say that Christ died. It says that he was obedient to the point of death. And then in John 10, 18, which we just read a minute ago, Christ said, this charge I have received from my Father. So Christ came to save his people because the Father sent him. So in the work of salvation, God the Son lovingly and humbly submits to God the Father. This doesn't mean that there's any kind of hierarchy in the Trinity as if the Father was superior to the Son, or the Son was less God than the Father was. No, they're all equal in their godness. This is just a willing, loving, humble submission on the part of the Son. The Father sent the Son because he loves us. The Father didn't force the Son to come as an act of cosmic child abuse. Christ willingly came. And he laid down his life out of a great, unstoppable love for us. And now, because Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, God the Father is working around the clock and around the globe to make sure that everyone everywhere hears the wonderful news about Christ and what he's done. And that's where this hymn concludes in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The world exists for the glory of Jesus Christ, not for you. Pride is so deadly because it's literally upending the order of the universe, making ourselves the center of attention where only God is supposed to sit. But also pride is so deadly because it makes us believe that we're good enough, that we're not really that bad, that our sin isn't really so awful, that we don't really need a savior. So put to death your pride by looking to the death of Christ. Christ came to save prideful sinners like me and you. Humbly trusting in him, not ourselves, is our only hope. But Christ is also our supreme example of humility. This section starts out, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this passage is calling us to be just as humble as Christ is. How could we ever do that? Humility is hard because it looks like a cross. It looks like dying to yourself in order to live for others. This isn't something that we can do on our own, but thankfully, we don't have to, which is our third truth about humility, the method of humility. 
Growing in humility isn't something that we can do on our own. We can't just decide to be more humble because we love ourselves too much. Do you realize that you don't get to decide what you love and what you hate? If you hate something, you can't just decide to stop hating it. That's beyond your control. So I hate to eat onions. I can't stand them. I hate the smell. I hate the taste. I hate the texture. I hate the way that they look. I hate everything about them. They offend me. So when someone serves me a meal with onions, that person isn't my friend anymore, just kidding, uh, I can force myself to eat the onions, but I can't force myself to stop hating them. They are nasty to me. I can't just decide that they're actually delicious. Now, if we can't even control our taste for vegetables, what makes us think that we can control our taste for right and wrong? If pride is loving ourselves too much, why do we think that we could change it on our own? We can't. That's why we need to be born again. When we're born again, God gives us a new heart that increasingly over time loves righteousness and hates evil. So if pride is loving yourself, we can't just decide to be humble. We need God to change our hearts. We need God to change our loves. But that's not all that God does. He's not just the start of this journey. He is every step of the way. Grace is the beginning of the Christian life, and grace is the substance of the Christian life. That's where the passage concludes today, in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, so therefore, in light of all these astounding realities that we just saw about who Christ is in the glories of God, the creator of all things, in light of all that he did to humble himself, taking on a human nature and emptying himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in light of all of that astounding reality, here's how you respond. Therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul commands his readers to work out their own salvation. Now notice there, he's not telling them to work for their salvation. He's telling them to work out the implications of their salvation. In other words, you could never earn your salvation. On your own, none of us could ever be humble enough to please God because our hearts are so full of pride. God doesn't save us because of anything good in us. He saves us out of his grace. And when God saves us, he gives us new hearts that are able to follow and obey him. God declares us to be holy in his sight, and then he gives us strength to actually fight for holiness, to become what we already are. So you are not able to look to the interests of others on your own, but God strengthens you to lay down your life. If you want to grow in humility, the first step is to pray and ask God to strengthen you to lay down your life. And Paul grounds this command in God's continued work for his people. So he says, work out your own salvation. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is in you to will, to change your desires so that you increasingly want what he wants and love what he loves. And God is in you to work, to actually strengthen you to serve him. God is the gas that both starts and empowers the automobile of the Christian life. 
Christianity is not about fixing yourself up and working harder to improve yourself. Christianity is about a great God who saves messy sinners for His glory. Christianity is not about a lenient God who ignores our sin. Christianity is not about an impatient God who is screaming at us, Fix yourself, you prideful sloth! Christianity is about a gracious God who loves us enough to forgive our sin and fix our sin. He's a gracious God who gets his hands messy in our sin. Your sin steals your joy, so God is working to destroy it. God is not ignoring your mess. He sees it and he knows it and he has launched a plan to lovingly deal with it for your joy. So don't keep it secret. Drag it into the light. So in closing, two points of application. To humbly depend on Christ and to humbly serve others. You might be feeling that you've never had God's power to help you stop sinning or to stop being prideful or to believe in him. And that might be because you're not actually a Christian. God hasn't yet given you that new heart. God is not in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. But he can do those things. Today, turn from your sin and believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and you will be saved. We are all sinners through and through. We have no reason for pride before God. He does not save us because we're good enough. He saves us out of grace God's not looking for you to clean yourself up before you come to him. God is calling you to humbly come to him, to bring your mess and to leave it at his feet because only he can save you from it. And again, if you have questions about that, please talk with me after the service. I would love to share more with you. Humbly depend on Christ and humbly serve others. If you are a Christian, you no longer live for yourself. The Christian life is about denying yourself to serve others. Throughout Philippians 2, Paul writes about how he and others are doing that, are humbly sacrificing themselves for the good of others. Consider how he puts it in Philippians 2.17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul doesn't care if he's entirely poured out with nothing left to give as long as the Philippians grow in their faith. So members of Pillar DC, pour yourself out for the church, for the neighborhood, and for the nations. Pour yourself out for others in our church. Lay down your life to meet physical needs or to help others grow in their faith. For some of you, that might look like committing to to a one-on-one discipleship relationship with someone, to regularly meet up with someone to help them grow in God's grace, to help them uh, work out their own salvation, to help them study and know God's word. That will take time for you to share your time and to share your life with them, but it's worth it. Look not only to your own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Pour yourself out so that they can grow in their faith. Are you willing to pour yourself out so that your neighbors might know this good news about Christ and what he's done? Have you ever noticed that pride is one of the top killers of evangelism? 
When you talk with, with Christians about why they don't share their faith, the answers are usually incredibly prideful. People say things like, well, I was just worrying about what they might think of me. I'm worrying that they might not want to hang out with me. I'm worried that they might think I'm weird. Humility frees us to not look to those interests, but rather to the interests of others so that we can share the gospel with bold confidence, knowing that it is the most loving thing that we can share with them. Pour yourself out for your neighbors. They may never talk to you again, but it's worth it. And finally, pour yourself out for the nations. When Philippians 2.11 says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's not just talking about those pink things in our mouths. It's referring to every tongue on the earth, every language on the earth. Today, there are thousands of language groups where Christ has never been confessed because Christ has never been proclaimed. And they will never hear unless people like you lay down your life to go and tell them. So as you make life plans, make this your top priority. The spread of the praise of Christ to every tongue, to every language group under the earth. Romans 10.14 puts it this way. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Christ saved us. He didn't save us because we deserved it, and we will never deserve it. And because we didn't earn this salvation, he gets all the glory. And we can lay down our lives to humbly serve others for his glory so that they too can hear this good news and be saved. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the treasure of your word. I pray that you would help us apply it to our hearts that you would help us to be amazed at the wonder of Christ and his humility. God, I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted what he did. I pray that we would treasure and cherish his name above everything else for the rest of our lives. I pray that we would pour ourselves out for the good of others. And God, I pray for anyone here today that feels unworthy of you. I pray that they would know that they are unworthy, but that you have made a way for them to be made right with you through your son who emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, I thank you so much for his glory. Would you amaze us with the person of your Son? Amen.